Swords and reavers, whores, cripples, bastards, and broken things. Welcome to a special episode of the Game of Microphones podcast. It's a still smug, book talk exclusive bonus episode, and I'm your host, Sir Duncan the Fearsome, Lord of Castle Sterling and bearer of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Dark Warrior. Jason and I figured that since we haven't had a book talk section in Game of Microphones until episode 7 of this year, that our book-reading listeners might appreciate and enjoy some coverage of plot lines, character arcs, and fun little details from the A Song of Ice and Fire book series that have made their way onto the screen so far during Season 6 of Game of Thrones. First, I'll cover some of the major plot arcs and character developments that have occurred this year in Game of Thrones from a book-reader's perspective, many of which have been anxiously anticipated by book-readers for years and years, so this is very exciting. Then, I'll cover some of the smaller details and book crossovers from each individual episode. So, let's begin. Entering into the beginning of Season 6, on the forefront of everybody's minds were the cliffhangers from the end of last season and the last book of A Song of Ice and Fire, that being the death step-by-stabbing of Jon Snow. There has been a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of speculation about this playing out in various ways, throughout the past five years, since 2011, when Dance with Dragons was released. And I hope fans were not disappointed. As many people suspected, it ended up being the Red Woman, Melisandre, who resurrected Jon Snow from the afterlife. Or so it seems. There are many different ways that people speculated about this happening, but I don't think anybody predicted that this would be the exact way. Interestingly, Melisandre is not in the room when Jon Snow actually became resurrected. So the question lingers, was it actually Melisandre and the Lord of Light who resurrected Jon Snow? I know there have been a number of theories about how Jon Snow would survive or be resurrected after the end of A Dance with Dragons in 2011, including the Red Woman resurrecting him in one way or another, Jon Snow warging into Ghost as he's as he died, and his consciousness surviving in, in Ghost long enough so that he could warg back into him, his, himself, whether his body was white or whether his body was being resurrected. People had wondered if his resurrection would be kind of a quick event on the show slash books or whether it would take a while. There was some foreshadowing um, in a couple cases in the books where Jon Snow had visited the ice cells at the wall and seen his own reflection in the in the blue ice and it has been speculated that for some reason his body would be put on ice essentially stored in the ice cells for an extended period of time before he was able to be resurrected there are other theories about who would resurrect Jon Snow as well some people thought that the Night King may resurrect Jon Snow as a white or even as a white walker so he could have turned to the dark side theoretically one of my favorite theories was that you know the Band of Brothers is out there, and Thoros of Mir had resurrected Beric Dondarrion, and they were kind of roaming the land, trying to help people out, fight for the small folk, fight for freedom and justice, until they ran upon the deceased body of Catelyn Stark in the river um, after the Red Wedding. 
So Beric Dondarrion breathed his own fire into Catelyn Stark, resurrecting her as Lady Stoneheart, himself dying in the process. This theory goes kind of deep. There's a lot of elements to it, but it includes what's known as the Grand Northern Conspiracy, where basically the premise is that before Rob Stark died, in a letter he had written that was spread throughout the, uh, the, the, the northern kingdoms, he had theoretically legitimized his brother Jon Snow and made him the heir to the northern throne, transforming him from Jon Snow to Jon Stark. So there's a theory that all these northern houses have this information that Jon Stark is the rightful heir to Rob and that they're kind of planning in secret, organizing themselves to rise up against the the um, Iron Throne behind Jon Stark at, at an opportune time. Now, as everybody knows, Catelyn Stark has never been a Jon Snow fan. He's supposedly the bastard of her husband and another woman. She doesn't like him. She always tried to protect the rights of her children as natural-born Starks and didn't want the bastard getting in the way of their inheritance. So... Lady Stark has always been sort of a nemesis of Jon Snow, but there are a couple circumstances that could have arisen that may have changed her mind on this issue. As book readers know, Catelyn Stark was present with Rob discussing the possibility of legitimizing Jon Snow after Sansa had been married to the Imp. Nobody wanted Winterfell to fall into the hands of the Lannisters, so if Rob was killed, Sansa, being the heir, would inherit Winterfell and thus, her husband, Tyrion Lannister, would have become the Lord of Winterfell, Warden of the North. This is not a scenario that Starks would have enjoyed, considering, you know, Catelyn had taken Tyrion prisoner, for instance, in season one, and the whole feud with the Starks and the Lannisters, you guys know, obviously. In this case, Jon Snow may have been the only way to legitimately keep Winterfell in the hands of the Starks. With Bran and Rickon dead, Arya missing, Sansa would have been the only person able to inherit Winterfell, and it would have, by, def by default, fallen into the hands of the Lannisters. Given this information, Catelyn Stark may have decided that Jon Snow inheriting Winterfell and continuing the Stark line may have been a better option than, you know, having the castle fall into enemy hands for once and for all. However, there's more compelling story material that may provide a different solution to the Catelyn Stark slash Jon Snow hatred. Book readers who paid very close attention may have noticed similarities between our friend from the Brotherhood with Banners, Lem Lemoncloak, and a mysterious figure from Rhaegar Targaryen's past, known as the Knight of Skulls and Kisses. Theorists have predicted or theorized, speculated that Rhaegar's friend, the Knight of, Skull and, Knight of Skulls and Kisses, may actually be Lem Lemoncloak. And where is Lem Lemoncloak now? He's with Lady Stark, with Lady Stoneheart. But more importantly, what does Lem Lemoncloak know? What did the Knight of Skulls and Kisses know? I think the Knight of Skull and Kisses had been in battle at the Trident when Rhaegar was killed and was a close confidant of the prince at that point. Given the nature of their relationship, he would have likely known that Rhaegar was potentially 
married to Lyanna Stark and was waiting for her to give birth to a potential son and heir. In that case, if the Knight of Skulls and Kisses was in the know about Jon Snow's potential birth and figured out that Ned Stark took Jon Snow and named him as his own son to protect him from Robert Baratheon when he took the kingship, it could be that Lem Lemoncloak, or the Knight of Skulls and Kisses, has the information that Jon Snow would be the legitimate heir to the Iron Throne after Rhaegar's demise and the demise of his son Aegon, young Aegon, whose head was dashed against the wall by the mountain during the conquest of King's Landing. In this case, Lem Lemoncloak could give this information to Catelyn Stark, which is a very interesting scenario because Catelyn has been an enemy of Jon Snow this whole time for the wrong reasons. She thought that he was the bastard of her husband, a symbol of her husband's infidelity, his unfaithful behavior, and it ate at her the whole time that he was around. Every time he saw her, or she saw him, she thought of Ned being unfaithful and the threat to her own children's succession. But if she found out that Jon Snow was actually Lyanna's son and the rightful heir to the Seven Kingdoms, her attitude could be completely changed by this information. All Lem Lemoncloak would have to do would be to tell her this, and she could be overcome with guilt for the way that she treated Jon for his entire life. She could, knowing this, make her way up to the wall with the uh, the Brotherhood Without Banners to pledge allegiance to Jon Snow and inform him of his actual heritage as king of the of the Seven Kingdoms and king of the North slash Lord of Winterfell, Warden of the North. In this case, I feel that Catelyn Stark would be so distraught and so ashamed of her behavior that much like Beric Dondarrion gave her life or gave his life to resurrect Catelyn Stark, if they arrived at the wall and found Jon Snow dead, I feel like Catelyn Stark in the ultimate sacrifice and, and uh, act of making up for her actions in the past would try to resurrect Jon Snow herself by passing her own flame of life into Jon Snow's body the way that Beric did for her. In this case, redemption could be achieved for Catelyn Stark for her her attitude and behavior towards Jon Snow for his whole lifetime and the information of Jon Snow's true heritage could be revealed to Jon himself and to the entire North. I think that would be a very poetic and beautiful way to bring about Jon Snow's resurrection, which could still happen in the books. Although, in both the books and the show, Melisandre is on the scene, ready to take action, theoretically, when Jon is murdered. Although I, hand, I think the show did handle this pretty well with um, the way that Melisandre ended up resurrecting him, and I think it's the most likely course of action for the books as well for Jon to be resurrected by Melisandre, the local Red Priestess, who had learned previously that Beric was re resurrected by Thoros of Mir, her associate and fellow Red Priest. I think that it would have been slightly more impactful, however, on the show if they had brought Melisandre to more of a place of desperation when she attempted the resurrection. When Thoros resurrected Beric, you know, Beric was his best friend. They were in a battle. 
everybody was being killed around them, and Thoros's man, his right hand man, Beric Dondarrion, was slain, and just completely distraught in agony. Thoros just followed his instincts. He didn't think about it. He just recited the words that he was taught in the Red Priesthood, and miraculously, Beric came back to life. This is significant because Thoros's faith had been shaken up till that point. He wasn't really believing in in R'hllor at that point. He he didn't find himself to be a real red priest. He just put on a facade, set his sword on fire for melees, and drank a bunch with King Robert, you know. He wasn't a devout red priest at that point. And similarly in the books, Melisandre or in the show as well, Melisandre's faith in the in R'hllor, the Lord of Light has been shaken at this point. Stannis has been potentially murdered, which we've found out to be conclusive on the the TV show, at least. You know, her faith is drastically shaken. I thought it would have been interesting, you know, after after the wildlings descend or ascend on um, Castle Black and they take over, Tormund Giantsbane inspects the body and says, oh, prepare a funeral pyre. This would have been um, a good time to have sort of a miracle take place. I was thinking it would have been cool if, as they're about to light the pyre and people are walking up to pay their last respects, Melisandre, in in her crisis of faith, in this broken state, goes up to the pyre, kneels, realizes that you know she's seen Jon Snow in her visions, that everything she believed was wrong, and just in one last effort, one last Hail Mary throw, decides to try to say the words to resurrect him. And at the last second before lighting the pyre, John would <gasps> come back to life. I thought that would have been a pretty cool way to do it. But most importantly, Jon Snow is back. He is alive. He's been resurrected. And everybody should be very happy about that and the way it was done. It was done fine. I, I thought it was great. One other method of resurrection that people had suspected that would kind of kill two birds with one stone, resurrecting John and revealing his Targaryen ancestry, would have been for John to be on the pyre, for the pyre to be lit, and for the fire to resurrect Jon Snow. Just like Danny in season one. Although she wasn't dead, but she survived through the fire. Some people thought that the fire may reignite Jon's flame and um, simultaneously resurrect him and you know, bring forth the question of who is this guy? Why does fire affect him this way? And uh, could have potentially, you know, revealed that he is in fact a Targaryen when people started analyzing his history and where he came from. Awesome. Next, let's talk about Lyanna Stark and the surrounding book crossovers that have taken place. Interestingly, in season six, Lyanna Stark has been a major focus Right off the bat, in the second episode, we get a vision of from Bran um, in the Weirwood Network. He sees his father, Ned Stark, fighting in the yard with wooden swords with his young brother, Benjen, which was cool enough to see it by itself. Great book crossover. We get young Ned Stark, so Ned's back on the show. <laughs> and we get Benjen, who's been gone for all these years. And on top of that... We see Ned's father, Rickard Stark, who people from the books or people from that are show watchers don't really know, but it was awesome. I was so pumped to see Rickard Stark on the screen, who would later be killed by the Mad King, as well as Ned's older brother, uh, Brandon. But just really, really cool to see. But then out of nowhere, 
Lyanna Stark rides on on screen on her horse and the world stopped. Lyanna Stark is potentially the most central figure to the entire Song of Ice and Fire and the Game of Thrones story. Robert's Rebellion was fought because of Lyanna Stark. The Targaryen dynasty, which had been in, in place for 300 years, or 280-ish years, was destroyed. The Targaryens lost the Iron Throne because of Lyanna Stark. Everything that is happening right now is because of Lyanna Stark's involvement in this story. Rhaegar kidnapping and raping her, potentially, or eloping with her, essentially, whichever may be the case, was the cause for Robert to rebel against the throne and destroy the Targaryens. This whole story revolves around Lyanna Stark. So, as a book reader, this moment was epic. People have, you know, we've we've heard tales of Lyanna Stark from the story about how she's such a badass, great horsewoman, great fighter, all this stuff, just a tenacious tomboy girl who was <laughs> embodiment of the, the, the tough northern woman, you know. So for us to see her riding on, on the screen on her horse and just being so badass was amazing. And all that it brought with it, all of the book crossovers, we got young Hodor or Willis. In the books, his name is Walder, but that was another great thing that we got to see from this exchange that occurred. It's been mentioned in the books that Hodor wasn't always Hodor. You know, before he was Hodor, he was Walder, or in the show, Willis, and he used to talk, but we never really found out what caused him to start Hodoring. I mean, he all of a sudden, one day, he just started saying Hodor, and so people just started calling him Hodor, but there's never really a big explanation given so it was very interesting to see that unfolding on screen. Um, the second that it happened and we saw Willis, I immediately started wondering if they would show us how he became Hodor and why. I didn't, I mean, I never really expected, there have been theories that, you know, Hodor and whatever became, made him Hodor would be important for the story, but I just couldn't see how it could be that influential. Obviously, it, it was huge. We found out in a later episode, um, which was just extremely emotionally impactful and amazingly done. We found out that Hodor means hold the door and that, you know, he was doing this to save Bran's life. I think that in that moment when Bran went back in time through the weirwoods and tried to warg into Hodor, somehow the consciousness of young Hodor was transferred into the future, into future Hodor, and he held the door, and as Hodor died, young Hodor's consciousness was damaged and mostly killed as well, just leaving him with Hodor for the rest of his life. So there's the Hodor aspect, but back to Lyanna. Next, next time she's in the picture, we see young Ned Stark riding up onto the Tower of Joy. Oh, my God, I have never been as excited watching TV or a movie as I was in this case. As a book reader, knowing the significance of this scene and knowing you know, what it potentially means for the story, the character revelations that could develop from it, Jon Snow being the legitimate Iron Throne heir potentially, and all, the, all of this mystery surrounding it, 
you know, Arthur Dane, the finest knight that the, the Seven Kingdoms have ever seen, his sword Dawn, which may be the original Lightbringer from the, the original Dark Knight, you know, the sword that may have brought the dawn, ended the long night, and, you know, saved humanity. All of this type of stuff happening on screen had my my blood just pumping and pumping, and my, I was freaking out. You can, you can ask my girlfriend when we were watching this. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is really happening. Holy crap. I was not expecting to see this on the TV show. You know, having brand connected to the Werewood Werewood Network has given us an opportunity to see all of these important events from the past, which I never thought we would get to see ever. So I was extremely, extremely thrilled to be witnessing Ned Stark, Howland Reed, and their boys riding up onto the Tower of Joy to take down Arthur Dane, Gerald Hightower, and recover Lyanna, potentially, from the Tower. There were some great crossovers from the books at this point with dialogue, including Ned sort of taunting Arthur Dane, who is one of his idols, to be honest. Ned says that Arthur was the finest knight he ever met, the finest knight he'd ever seen, the greatest sword fighter in the history of the Seven Kingdoms. Arthur Dane has this wide reputation of just being the most chivalrous, talented, exceptional knight and human. So just to see Arthur Dane on the screen was amazing enough. And all of the imagery and history that that brought up was just fantastic to witness. But Ned says to him right off the bat, I looked for you on the trident, you know, which was where Ned and Robert had killed Rhaegar as Kingsguard, they should have been on the trident there protecting their prince. But, you know, Arthur Dane says, you know, our king wanted us here. Um, but it, Ned, just such a such a badass in that moment. He knows Arthur Dane is so much better than him at, at sword fighting and kicking ass. But he still says with this smug look, this cocky attitude, you know, I looked for you on the trident. You know, where's my sister? This whole war is leading up to this moment where he can recover his sister and save her. And the whole war revolves around this. Why is it so important that the Kingsguard are protecting the Tower of Joy? What is in there? Why is Lyanna such an object that deserves to be protected by, by the Kingsguard? These people are supposed to be protecting the royal family, okay? So why are they at the Tower of Joy? Speculation says, theorists say that Rhaegar was obsessed with prophecy. This is known from the books. He knew about the prince that was promised, the Azor Ahai that would reborn, that would save the world essentially from the night again and from the White Walkers. He was convinced that he was the prince that was promised in his early life. And later on, he became convinced that his son Aegon was the prince that was promised. But I'm convinced, I think, that he knew that his son with Lyanna would be the prince that was promised and that this combination that, you know, this, the song of ice and fire, fire being the Targaryens, ice being the Starks, the combination of their bloodlines, the mingling would lead to this, you know, this superb, powerful character with warging abilities and dragon riding abilities, the full spectrum of, 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 um, you know, bloodline, genetic predisposition for ta like uh, talents essentially would be embodied by a son of ice and fire which would be 
a, a descendant of Stark and Targaryen. It was prophesied that the prince that was promised would be from the Ares Rhaella lineage. Rhaegar is from this lineage. So would Jon Snow be if, if in fact, he is Lyanna's son and Rhaegar's son. So why is it so important that the Kingsguard are protecting this place? Because most of Rhaegar's life has been dedicated to this prophecy. And if he thought that his son, John, John Targaryen, potentially, was the prince that was promised, he would you know, keep him away from the fighting, safe and dorn in a tower while he's being born, have the Kingsguard there to protect him, because everything... You know, the, the, the life or death of humanity itself may rest on this child's shoulders. And it's possible that Ned found this out, which is why he pretended that John was his own son, because Robert Baratheon would kill any bastard or any, not bastard, any, any Targaryen that was left living would be destroyed by Robert Baratheon because it would be a threat to the Iron Throne, to his Iron Throne. But goddamn, how cool is this scene, man? The tower was great. It didn't look exactly like they described it in the tower in the uh, in the books. It's a circular tower in the books. But who cares? This 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 sight, this this scene that they chose to film at was just gorgeous, beautifully shot. The angles, the, the uh, cinematography was amazing. And how about this sword fight, man? There's never a mention of Arthur Dane dual wielding swords in the books, so. It, it was a surprise, a shocker to see him pull out two swords and just start wailing away on all these guys, killing how many of it was seven, six or seven on three. I think it was seven on three in the books. And this was what, six on two. Arthur Dane single-handedly destroys most of his competition here with um, Gerald Hightower, the Lord Commander of the, of the, um, the, the Kingsguard being offed fairly early on in the fight. And as a book reader, um, we all know that Howland Reed saved Ned Stark somehow from dying at the Tower of Joy, and that Ned Stark had killed Arthur Dane. But there was always mystery surrounding this because everybody knew that, you know, that that Arthur Dane was a much better swordsman, and um, you know there was always just slight mystery surrounding what happened here. Unfortunately, I don't think we got to see ice. Or I'm sorry, not ice, but Dawn, um, the ancestral sword of House Dane, which may have been the original Lightbringer. But I think it's an okay decision to leave it out of the show because seeing that sword and like giving a focus, giving that sword the focus of the scene may have taken away from all the other extremely important things that were that were happening in the scene, including you know Jon Snow potentially being born in the tower behind there. So that was, I think, a an okay decision. I would have still kept it in probably if I were directing, but it was okay to leave it out because there's so much important stuff happening there anyway. And I think that the actor that portrayed young Ned here just absolutely killed it. He did a great job. He sounded just like Ned. His mannerisms, his facial expressions, everything was just delivered with great gravitas and poignancy. The, the other interaction that they have was beautiful as well. You know, Arthur Dane puts on his helmet, says, I wish you good fortune in the wars to come. And now it begins. And one of the important lines from the books that Ned delivers as a retort here, with a sad smile on his face, he says, no, now it ends. And 
You know, he didn't want to have to kill Arthur Dane, who he looked up to, but he had to do it to save his sister because they were not, you know, open to reasoning here. And just a very sad, brutal scene overall. This was potentially the best sword fighting scene also from Game of Thrones, and it was just amazing to see. I was in shock the whole time, just my eyes, my eyelids on the floor. You know how, like, your jaw drops to the floor? No, my eyelids were on the floor. I couldn't blink. I was watching the screen the whole time, and uh, just greatness all around. Amazing. Next, we have Sir Robert Strong, or the mountain as he's strangely referred to on the TV show they apparently Cersei didn't even bother trying to hide the fact that she kept the mountain alive um, but since the end of a feast for crows I think it was with the, uh, the the shame walk the atonement of Cersei and the arrival of her new King's guard Sir Robert Strong people have been I don't know if it's so much speculation but just anticipating the return of the mountain and seeing the massive destruction that he's capable of now. And the, the first scene with him was not a disappointment. We get a guy talking shit about Cersei and her shame walk at a bar, and then he goes into the alley to take a pee after, and the mountain just crushes his head against the wall like a baby, just like baby Aegon Targaryen 20 years before. He just smashes his head, just like the Red Viper of Dorne in Season 4, the mountain and the viper just smashes his head he loves crushing heads this guy i think he also may have crushed elia martell's head yes he did he definitely did he just crushes 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 heads very cool i can't wait to see what happens with sir robert strong or the mountain as he is still known in the tv show it's going to be brutal and book readers are ravenous to see how this will play out i'm sure just like me Next, we have Euron Greyjoy. This was a storyline that many people thought the show would skip for a while because it would have started taking place a while ago, in, um, at least it did in the books, in sort of the way that the story was arranged. But there are, yeah, a few differences here in the way it kind of plays out in the, in the story, which is interesting. The Ghost of Highheart, if you guys remember, had told Lem Lemoncloak a series of prophecies from her dreams, one of which was that an Iron King, which would be Balon Greyjoy, was standing on a windy bridge, you know, and a faceless a man with no face showed up with a crow on his shoulder and seaweed dangling from his head, and that he threw Balon off the bridge into the abyss below, landing on the rocks and the waves. This seems to imply in the books that Euron Greyjoy hired a faceless man to commit the murder of his brother, Balon Greyjoy, the king of the Iron Islands. So it was interesting to see Euron show up on the bridge himself, challenge Balon. A great scene where the, the bridge is shaking around in the wind and Euron, or Balon is gripping along, gripping the ropes, trying to stay balanced, and Euron's just standing there stoic with his arms crossed, not, not losing any balance at all as the bridge just violently moves beneath him and he's just standing straight and tall and and focused and inevitably he throws Balon off the bridge himself and then for him to admit that this is happening at the king's moot was very interesting he basically says yeah i killed my brother you know what has he done for us he lost a war then he's losing wars now you know we need a change of leadership and i'm the person to do it 
and the Ironborn got behind him. Cool to see this happening on the TV show. It's going to be very exciting to see how things play out with Daenerys and Euron Greyjoy. Okay, so let's talk about some smaller things, some smaller book crossovers that have happened on the episodes. Right away in episode one, we see Ghost reacting to Jon's death. And this is interesting, very interesting, in fact, because Ghost is whining. He's locked up in a room and he is crying, 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 knowing that something has happened to Jon. And this is it stands out to me, especially because in the books, Ghost never makes sound. You know, when they first find the direwolf pups, they're walking away and John thinks he hears a noise. You know, I I hear something and he goes back and everyone's like, what? We didn't hear anything. But he finds little ghost off in the snow by himself. He'd crawled away from the other direwolf pups. And we do learn that ghost is a mute. He never makes a noise, never growls, never barks. So right off the bat, that's that's a hint that there was some type of mental connection, some type of... um mind bridge warging relationship between John and ghost because John's the only one that heard this noise that ghost made a little whimper that nobody else heard because he didn't actually whimper. It was calling out to John mentally, essentially what I, at least that's what I think happened. So it was very interesting to see ghost whining in this circumstance. I don't know if that was just a detail that was lost to the showrunners or whether or not it had signified that John was in ghost's body. And so Ghost was making noise because John was in there and trying to, you know, make noise or what. But just an interesting little detail that I noticed um, just had me thinking for a little bit. Another interesting book revelation that has been speculated about for years and years that finally took place on screen right in the first episode of the season, The Red Woman, was the bomb dropping, the revelation that Melisandre has been using a glamour. It's been speculated for years due to passages from the A Song of Ice and Fire books, one of which from a Melisandre perspective where it, it read, for countless years Melisandre had practiced her craft. Sounded interesting because, you know, she looks like, what, 40, 45 years old max. Um, that's not countless years. So people had speculated that with this glowing red ruby around her neck and after her putting a glamour on Mance Raider and making him a as rattle shirt, people had speculated that she herself was using a glamour and she may be an aged crone of countless years. Who knows how old she could be? Hundreds, thousands of years using the light or the, the magic of red relore to stay alive. But this was revealed on the show in spectacular fashion and um, uh, <laughs> it was just amazing to see. I'm sure book readers who had been in on this theory around the world were shocked and awed and not surprised by this revelation, but very cool to see. In this same episode, we have the confirmation of Stannis Baratheon's death by Roose Bolton and um, Ramsay Bolton when they're discussing that, yes, Stannis is dead. Do we know who killed him? No. But this is very very interesting in the books as everybody knows we have the pink letter which is received by Jon Snow at the wall sealed with Bolton wax you know the pink Bolton seal with the flayed man so it's known as the pink letter but it says in this letter written by Ramsay interestingly that yes Stannis is dead yes I have Mance Raider captive we know everything you know I dare you to come down here basically 
all of this information in the pink letter. And at the time, you know, in the books, it's unclear whether or not this is a real letter. People had speculated that Mance Raider may have written it. You know, there was no evidence that Stannis was dead. We never saw the battle. So this was a shock to book readers to all of a sudden hear that Stannis was dead, that Mance had been captured. Although, honestly, the idea that Mance was captured was kind of inevitable considering that Theon and Sansa barely escaped and that, you know, all of Mance's women were dead. And it was pretty obvious since all of his washerwomen were involved with these murders and helping Theon and Arik at that point and Sansa escaped that, you know, Bale the Bard himself was probably involved with this plot. So it wouldn't surprise me if he was actually captured in the books as well. But it was a shock to hear that Stannis was dead in battle. I mean, also, you know, the conditions were horrible leading up to that point in the books. So it's not surprising that Stannis would have been murdered in battle as well, considering how under-rationed and impoverished his, his army had become at that point. You know, but there's been a lot of speculation about whether or not they would lure the Boltons out onto a like onto these frozen lakes that they're traversing and get them to fall through the ice and killing their armies in mass or what you know, all these different options. So it was interesting to see Stannis's death confirmed on the TV show, at least in show canon, and it's definitely making waves out there in the book community. Another beautiful moment that we saw in the first episode was when Brienne came to save Theon and Sansa. And Brienne swears an oath of fealty to Sansa, and Sansa swears a return oath to be a faithful, you know, a, a, a good lord to Brienne and to always treat her properly. And um, it was it was very poignant. It, it was echoes of Catelyn from the books and from the show, which made it really cool to see. It was just a, it was a parallel to when Brienne swore her oath to Catelyn, and in Catelyn's mind, she's thinking, wow, like, I've never had someone swear an oath to me before. This would normally be Ned that someone's swearing fealty to. And I just I just wish Ned could see me now. And she's, it's a very emotional moment. She, um, you know, she, rece- she receives Brienne into her service and tells her there will always be meat and mead for her in her hall. And it's just very emotional very beautiful scene, very well done and acted, and um, it was great to see on screen. You know, by the old gods and the new, I'm not going to lie, I was pretty choked up at that moment, so they did a good job. Let's see, no surprises to book readers when Arya is stick-fighting as a blind girl. That's right out of the books. Um, elements from the Mercy chapter of the Winds of Winter that was pre-released have come to fruition on the show as well cool to see. I haven't read the chapter, but I've heard a a bit about it, and uh, it seems like you know, it was done pretty well. Ooh, I was shocked when the Child of the Forest tells Mira Reed that Bran will not be in the cave forever, and that he will need her when he leaves the cave. This was a big surprise to me, because as a book reader, I never suspected that Bran would ever leave that cave again with the Three-Eyed Raven. I thought that he would pretty much take over where the Three-Eyed Raven left off and be the new man in the tree. But the Three-Eyed Raven tells him, you're not going to be an old man in the tree, which (laughs) was pretty funny. I was, you know, just shocked by that. Some other differences in this scene that were shocking to book readers, I assume, were 
the revelation that the Three-Eyed Raven has been in the tree for a thousand years waiting for Bran. This is very different from the books, where it's made clear that the Three-Eyed Raven is Brendan Rivers, a Targaryen bastard legitimized during the Dance with Dragon or Dance of Dragons, who was essentially eventually banished to the Wall, and ended up under this tree as the Three-Eyed Raven. He's been alive in the books for about 120 years, I believe. So for him to be in that tree for a thousand years in in the TV show means that he's an entirely different person than he is in the books, which is interesting. And based on what we've learned so far, my theory is that the Three-Eyed Raven is actually our Bran Stark, future Bran Stark, who somehow ended up in the past which is entirely possible now with all this new weird time travel shit that's going on in the show, which is awesome and a trip. So that was pretty cool and interesting for book readers, especially because it was so different that it caught me off guard for sure. And wow, we get Tyrion Lannister going in to visit the dragons. Now this is not something that happens in the books, but given knowledge of from the books of a certain character, Quentin Martell, who similarly visits the dragons, I was terrified going into this scene. As you guys know, Quentin Martell is roasted by the dragons. He's the only person we've seen other than Danny try to go in and interact with the dragons alone, and they are not having it. He is burnt to a crisp and ends up dying as a result of the dragon fire. So seeing Tyrion go in alone to face these dragons and knowing what happened to Quentin, I mean... Tyrion is such an, a central character as well that I had a hard time imagining that they were going to combine these storylines and kill Tyrion. But at the same time, I was terrified for Tyrion. And the acting in this scene is just immense. Tyrion goes in there, says to the dragons, you know, I'm here to help you. Don't kill the help. And proceeds to tell the dragons about how when he was a child, he wanted to have a dragon. You know, And he asked for a dragon for his sixth name day or one name day, one or the other, said it doesn't have to be a big one. It can be little like me, you know, and goes through his whole history of having dragon dreams and his fascination with dragons throughout his life. And miraculously, the dragons leave him unburnt. He succeeds in removing their collars and seems to have made a couple new, very powerful friends in the process. It was very, very well done. The animation was amazing. The sound effects were great. The speech was beautiful. Had me choked up again. And this is also interesting because it plays into another book theory, the secret Targaryen-Tyrion theory, where, I mean, it's been speculated due to the incest that Cersei and Jaime had, were... Targaryens, you know, their father was the hand of the king, Ares, and Ares was known to have taken liberties with Joanna, Joanna during the betting ceremony at Tywin and Joanna's wedding. So people had speculated that Cersei and Jaime may have actually been the offspring of Ares Targaryen, the Mad King. George kind of poo-pooed this when he released The World of Ice and Fire, his latest novel or history book, more more likely, more so. We learned that Joanna had been at Casterly Rock during the time when Jamie and Cersei were conceived, so it, it's pretty unlikely that Jamie and Cersei are Targaryens, but Joanna may have been in King's Landing with Tywin 
around the time when Tyrion was conceived. So combined with Tyrion's dragon dreams and his obsession with dragons, which is like a known trait or characteristic of the Targaryen bloodline, that combined with the fact that the dragons didn't kill him here and the fact that, you know, Tywin has said repeatedly, you are not my son, you know, you you have my name and are, you know, we raised you because I can't prove that you're not mine. All this kind of adds together to create the possibility that Tyrion himself is a Targaryen, which is very interesting considering the prophecy told to Danny that the dragon has three heads and there are three dragons, obviously. So that means that leaves the opening for three dragon riders. We could have Jon Snow riding a dragon, theoretically, if he's a Targaryen, or we could have Bran warging into a dragon, or we could have Tyrion end up riding a dragon as well. And this could have been foreshadowed in season one or in book one when he came back to Winterfell on his way home from captivity in the Vale and found Bran Stark crippled from the waist down. And as a gesture of kindness and and being helpful, he designed he wrote down a design for a saddle that Bran could use to ride horses so that he could at least ride a horse even though he was crippled. This leads me to question and may have been foreshadowing of Tyrion creating his own saddle to ride a dragon later in this series, which would be amazing. So some people are really against the, you know, secret Targaryen theories surrounding Tyrion, but I think that it would be awesome. And I'm kind of hoping that it happens because let's be honest, Tyrion Lannister has gotten the shit end of the stick his entire life and dude deserves to ride a fucking dragon. Okay. Let's see it happen. Another interesting development that is an extension from book plots is the death of Roose Bolton at the hands of Ramsay Bolton. I think many people have been speculating about this for a while, considering the uh, potential for infighting in the Bolton family. And, you know, one thing that stuck out to me was that in the books, Roose casually says at one point, oh, well, if Walda has any kids, you know, Ramsay will just kill them because there'll be threats to him. And um, we actually got to see this happen on the show, which was kind of a fun nod to the books. But um, yeah, this has been speculated about for a while, so it's interesting to see happen on screen. Next, for book crossover, we go to Sam and Gilly on a boat. And this plays out a little bit differently than it did on the, in the books. As you know, with them on the trip was Maester Aemon in the books. Sadly, he dies on the way, unfortunately, but they had different plans for him on the show. Gilly seems to have her own baby in this case. I guess there wasn't too much of a threat up at the wall for him, for her because the uh, Mance Raider's child never existed on the, sh- on the show canon. So there's no need to swap out the babies like they did on the, uh, on the, in the books. So they are heading to Old Town first, and there's a little bit of comic relief here because Sam just keeps throwing up and throwing up, and Gilly is acting smart. She finally learned how to read, and she's joking about how she thought the sea was named after being able to see the sea as as far as the eye can see. Kind of a funny little thing. I forgot to mention before that in the scene with Ned and Howland Reed and crew running up on the Tower of Joy... Um, Bran yells to his dad to pass Ned. He yells, Father! And Ned seems to react to it. There's a similar scene in the books where 
Theon is in the the um, Weirwood Forest at Winterfell by the heart tree, and Bran tries to stop to talk to Theon through the tree, and he looks up and seems to hear something, thinks he hears his name whispered on the wind, and um, you know it's not clear enough for him to respond. But it's an interesting crossover. I guess instead of using Theon for this, they decided to use Ned um, on the show, which was really cool. Just really awesome to see that happen. And uh, the the question is pervasive. Does Bran have powers that the Three-Eyed Raven didn't think he did? Can he speak to people through the trees? I know hosts of other podcasts, for instance, um, have speculated about this and they've you know, every time they hear the leaves rustling in the trees, they think it's Bran trying to talk to somebody or have an influence on the past. So pretty cool. Back over at King's Landing, we have an appearance of Varys' little birds. There's been some talk about these guys in the books. and We know that he liked to use little kids to pass his messages around and uh, fit through small spaces and sneak on people and gain information, break into people's houses, look at the contents of letters and... Uh, basically practice information warfare as opposed to stealing wealth or items because information is power, people. You should know that. So kind of cool to see them on the show. Uh, it's more of a book thing, really. So, yeah, it's fun to see Kyburn kind of co-opt his little birds for his own purposes. We'll see what happens with that. So we learn through a different series of circumstances. In this case, on the show, Littlefinger telling Sansa that the Blackfish has taken back River Run, which sets the stage for the whole Riverlands story arc that takes place in the last two A Song of Ice and Fire books. So exciting. And in a vision that I never expected to see through the Weirwoods, we discover through Bran's eyes that the Children of the Forest created White Walkers. I know there's been speculation as to how the White Walkers came about based on book knowledge, and a lot of people were confirmed correct in this. People had suspected that the Children of the Forest had, in fact, created the White Walkers. So that is good information to know and um, is certainly relevant and important to the mythology of Westeros that is, you know, that's been building for 20 years at this point. Crazy information and new revelations are occurring consistently these days. This takes us to the next episode, where we see a series of visions in rapid flashes through Bran's eyes. And among those visions are amazing things that book readers were incredibly excited to see happen on screen. For instance, we saw the Mad King, Ares Targaryen, that is correct, Daenerys Stormborn's father. He ruled King's Landing for decades, and we saw him on the day of his death, shouting, burn them all, burn them all. <laughs> we see pyromancers filling jars with wildfire. We see Jamie stab the Mad King in his back and sit on the Iron Throne. These are things that I never thought we would saw see on the TV show, and it is so cool to see them finally portrayed in live action. Amazing, amazing stuff. We see Cold Hands in this episode, who, it turns out, is Benjen Stark. As you guys all know, well, maybe, some of you might not know this, there was a uh, manuscript that of A Dance with Dragons that, or one of the books, the one with Cold Hands, I can't remember which one it is right now, they're all kind of a blur, but um, George R. R. Martin had donated an original manuscript to some library, I think at a, at a like Texas A&M or one of those 
big universities and um, people were researching, going through the manuscripts and discovered a note in the margins from his editor at the Cold Hands part that said, is Cold Hands Benjamin Stark? And George R.R. R. Martin had responded simply, no. So apparently on the TV show, Benjamin Stark is Cold Hands and this would be a departure from the books. Unless George R. R. Martin has subsequently changed his plans for Cold Hands or he was just lying. But who knows, it could be anything. One of the other cool book crossovers we've gotten to experience this season is the Horn Hill stuff, including the introduction of Samwell's father, Randall Tarley, who is just as cold and hard as we have imagined him all these years. James Faulkner, I think, did a great job portraying this character who just comes across as the biggest racist douchebag imaginable, who will just not support his son in anything. We all knew he was awful, awful human, but it was crazy to see him on screen. And you never get to see him interact with Sam in the books yet, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out if it ever happens in the books as well. One of the other great things about this scene was being able to see Heartsbane, the legendary sword of Valyrian steel held for generations or centuries by the, the Tarly house. And I was shocked when Sam decides to steal it. Can you believe that, guys? What a what an act of balls from from this guy Sam, who otherwise is, you know, for the most part, been a very cowardly person. I mean, he's had big, huge moments and development where he's stepped up. He killed a White Walker. He's protected Gilly. Done all this big bad, big like major badass stuff in the in his the later part of his arc throughout the story. But it was interesting to see him steal his family heirloom right after being so just so cowed by his father and just sitting there doing nothing while his father's talking trash about his his wildling you know his babe it was wild to see uh what's he gonna do with it you think he's gonna bring it back to the wall i mean obviously either his father or dickon his brother will come chasing after it so if he brings it back to the wall they could come face to face with white walkers and realize that the real war is in the north Maybe the Tarly army will head north uh, to help, you know, the real fight. It'd be interesting to see. There was one other little book tidbit in this episode that caught my ear. It was a mention of the Fossaway family. It turns out that Tala, I think her name is, Sam's little sister, has been betrothed to one of the Fossaways. This is a nice little book tie-in for anybody who's a fan of the Duncan Egg novellas, as there are... You know, there's this family, the Fossaways, who both helped contribute and detract from Dunk's rise in the uh, in the story. There's this this asshole douchebag older brother Fossaway, and their 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 logo is their their family sigil is the red apple. Okay, and he pretends to be Dunk's friend, Sir Duncan the Tall, his friend, and um, that ends up being questionable. I don't want to spoil it. For you guys, um, if, if you haven't read the novellas, I know that you're book readers, but novellas are, you know, separate than the they're the regular books. So just go read that. It's really a lot of fun. Really, really a lot of fun. And it's not I'm not just saying that because my name's Duncan, but Sir Duncan the Tall is is a great character and um there's some really cool adventures and just great overall storytelling in those. So the younger Fossaway brother in the story 
ends up separating himself from his brother who he doesn't like. And he changes his sigil to the green apple saying that, well, you're rotten basically to your older brother. You're red. You're a red apple, but you're a rotten red apple. So I'm, I'm just ripening, you know, I'm a good green apple still. Um, so it's really cool to hear the Fossaways mentioned on the TV show and brought up a whole bunch of memories instantaneously from the Duncan Egg novellas into my mind. And I'm sure a lot of you guys experienced that as well. So that pretty much covers the book crossovers from season six, episodes one through six. And I think you'll agree that there's been a lot of good stuff so far this year. Man, I'm excited to see the rest of this season. I hope you guys are too. And I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed rambling aimlessly for this past hour. <laughs> I'm your host of the Still Smug Book Talk section, Sir Duncan the Fearsome, Lord of Castle Sterling and bearer of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Dark Warrior. I'll see you guys next week with more book talk. He loves crushing heads, this guy. I'm crushing your head. I'm crushing your head. I'm crushing your head. That's what I'm doing, flathead. Ha. He just crushes, crushes, crushes heads. <laughs>